This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today. I'm your host, Jay Scott, and I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Kevin Passmore, who's a guide and hunter in central Arizona and was fortunate uh, to uh, guide uh, Cindy Richardson on her uh, big 400-inch uh, elk. We're going to hear about that today, and we're going to hear about Kevin's tactics for harvesting bulls with his bow and on the rifle hunts on the late elk hunts and get some of his tips and tactics. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to encourage you guys to uh, purchase some Arizona Big Game Super Raffle uh, tickets um, for the upcoming year. Uh, the tickets are on sale right now. You can go to www.arizonabiggamesuperraffle.com and buy your tickets right there. Uh, the drawing uh, will end, I believe, on, um, uh, let's see, July 10th, and online sales will end on July 12th. The drawing will be July 23rd, and all of this money goes to the state of Arizona goes specifically for that species so the hundred and fifty thousand dollars that's raised for sheep goes to sheep and and uh, uh, the other uh, the other money let's say the thirty eight thousand for antelope goes directly into antelope and twenty eight thousand that was raised last year went directly into coos deer um, you can buy these tickets uh, antelopes twenty dollars black bear five dollars Buffalo 20, Coos Whitetail 10, Desert Bighorn 25, Elk 25, Javelina 5, Mountain Lion 5, Mule Deer 20, Turkey 5. The optics, Swarovski Optics patch, Package is $10. Uh, there's a New Mexico Elk Hunt, $20 each or 6 for $100. Um, just a phenomenal uh, way to raise money for the state of Arizona for the animals that we love to hunt. So I want to encourage you guys to go on there and get your tickets. Uh, People do win every year. I've known several people that have won uh, the coos deer, the mule deer, and we've been fortunate to guide uh, the desert bighorn hunter three years. And I just got finished uh, guiding the turkey hunter on his uh, Gould's turkey hunt, uh, Michael Turner from Alabama. And uh, so they're 365 day a year uh, hunt. So the hunts uh, usually begin on August 15th and they go to the following August 14th. So you have 365 days to hunt your animal. Uh, just a phenomenal opportunity. I also want to thank you guys for all your support. Uh, if you have any comments, uh, please e email them to me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, really appreciate the iTunes uh, comments and support and getting five-star ratings on iTunes. I also wanted to encourage you guys to uh, subscribe um, because if you subscribe on iTunes, you automatically get that downloaded on your phone and you don't have to wait. Uh, there's a little bit of a lag time when I load them onto my Podbean account, and it takes so oh, anywhere from six to 15 hours for them to be uploaded onto iTunes. So if you subscribe on iTunes, you automatically get it as soon as I load it uh, into the system. So, uh, guys, thanks for all the comments. I get uh, text, emails, and phone calls every day from you guys uh, 
given me ideas and, and uh, given me encouragement. So I just want to thank you. So let's get right to the episode. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a special guest. We have Kevin Passmore. Kevin is an avid Arizona archery elk hunter, late rifle hunter, a hunter in general, loves hunting elk. Um, he guides for elk, hunts for elk. He loves those hunts that are a little bit out of the ordinary. He likes the late stuff. He likes uh, patterning those bulls, and we're going to get in and find out his tactics and the, and the, the methods that he used to find these really nice bulls on these late hunts and um he's a great glasser uh kevin is a family man he's his wife uh is a hunter and and um he's uh just a great guy um he's got these cool uh twin spotting scope binoculars that we're going to talk to him about he really likes uh, long range glassing and um we're just going to have a good time here with him today uh he's 29 years old he was raised in mayer arizona um, and uh, he's just an avid hunter. His wife, Brittany, and two kids. I'm um, excited to talk to Kevin today. Uh, he was fortunate uh, to be with uh, Cindy Richardson when uh, she harvested uh, her giant bull, uh, I believe 417 gross, 390 uh, net, Pope and Young, and uh, Kevin can probably tell us a little bit about that. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Jay. How are you? Great. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Um, give me a little bit of background on yourself and your start in hunting and, and uh, maybe some of the, the you know shed hunting and glassing and give me an idea of how much time you spend out in the field these days. Okay. Um, well, I've you know been out in the outdoors since uh, you know my parents have told me since I was six months old. They took me on a couple of javelina hunts and I think my first actual hunt I got to tag along with my father was uh, when I was four, an archery avalina hunt, and ever since then, you know, I've told them, you guys created this monster. It's just, <laughs> it's something that's consumed me, and uh, yeah, from shed hunting to to bow fishing to, you know, just going out and glassing and seeing all of Arizona, you know, love to go out and just, just glass and bounce around from wherever I can, so. And Kevin, uh, you were raised in Mayer, and then you presently live in the Prescott Valley, and I believe you're a lineman for uh, APS. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I, I left uh, Mayer shortly out of high school, went to Phoenix for a little bit, and then uh, was lucky enough to be able to transfer back to Prescott where I reside now. And From what I understand, you're a real big fan of big cities, um, <laughs> rumor has it. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a long two years. You know, I, I call it doing my prison time, but uh, every weekend I could, I was fighting traffic, getting back up to, you know, northern Arizona where, where I want to be. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, Kevin, I want to talk to you today about your experience on these late elk hunts um, and how you're finding these bulls, uh, some of the perseverance that goes into uh, finding these bulls, your tactics. Uh, maybe some of the similarities and, and things that you notice year after year where maybe these bulls, maybe the terrain or topography where these bulls are hanging out. Um, can you dive into late elk hunting uh, with me a little bit? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, when I was younger, you know, Thanksgiving was in the woods. Uh, that's just how I grew up. I never never really had, you know, a Thanksgiving at a house. It was always in a wall tent and that's my life and from uh from as far as i can remember 
hunting units like uh, 5A and 6A and 5B, a um, couple in 7 West, you know, the just the canyon country that that just pulled pulled me to them you know all the big canyons and clear creek is is just something i love about it and for those listeners um that aren't real familiar with arizona uh kevin's kind of referring to a lot of the country that's maybe kind of coos deer type country big canyon country um maybe not as much like unit nine or or say maybe some of unit 10 that's relatively flat and pinion and juniper uh from the sounds of it kevin you you like to hunt where there's some topography and 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 some big canyons yeah i you know what that usually keeps a lot of hunters out you know when i first when we first started really diving into you know the bigger stuff it it was pushes you know we'd set hunters up on points and you know it was you know friends or family whoever and you know find some thicker cedar tree country and just walk through there making noise and then them bulls you'll find trails into them canyons where they'll you know escape from pressure and you know it's it was pretty cool to see those bulls come you know busting out and when they hit them trails how they slow down and we took a couple bulls like that and then as i grew into it it just turned into more of you know being more tactical you know spotting and stalking and glassing and just you know covering country you know, fast, walk out to the edge, glass, you know, big canyons, look, you know, and find out where those bulls were hanging, either the lower country or into the pine country even. And over the years, have you noticed on those, you know, typically those late elk hunts take place at the end of November, early December, have you noticed a particular type of terrain that most of those bulls hang in that late, late, late type season? You know, it's it's funny. It's kind of changed. Uh, in more recent years, it seems like the bulls know, they can kind of know what's going on, and they're staying more up on top. You know, you can find them in the canyons, but I've been, you know, in a unit where, you know, I called it just, just shopping. You would drive from point to point. You'd walk out, and you'd see a bull, you know, bedded, you know, and pass them up, keep going. Well, lately, it's more and more people are getting more adventurous. They're they're hiking into the canyons and I think the last one I was on that was in a pretty big canyon we ended up hunting for you know four or five days and bumped one bull that entire time but once we hit the pine tree you know the canyons and the pine trees it was like there was no one up there and you know we started finding bulls. So when you talk about the bulls are up on top what you're referring to is and correct me if I'm wrong but you're referring to some of those big rims and plateaus where You've got your pine trees up on top, and then as it breaks off into lower elevation, breaks into more transitional country, and then, you know, pinion juniper, and then and then more into that open canyon country where you can glass across. What you're saying is a lot of these elk have been actually staying up on the tops uh, in, in the thick trees. Is that how I'm hearing you? Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, early morning we'll walk, you know, the edge is looking in the canyons, but more or less you'll look across and you see them bulls feeding on the rim, you know, not necessarily in the canyon, but they're staying up up high, I think waiting on pressure to either tell them to go, you know, down the canyon or stay up top. How much of that do you think is that we've had some fairly mild winters in Arizona, and do you see that changing if, say, we had some, you know, big, you know, November storms with snows, or, or do you feel like it's just they would prefer to be in the, the uh, pine trees up in, you know, where there's 
little bit of grass and what have you in meadows. And then once pressure hits, then they hit those canyons. Yeah, I think it's a lot. I think, you know, the late hunt, um, as far as I can remember, lately has been a lot warmer. You know, there's been a couple hunts that I've actually put in for anticipating normal weather for that time of the year that I would consider that to push them bulls into canyons and pockets that I wanted to hunt. And it's never worked out that way. I've always had to change up because it seems like our, our winters have come a little later it's been a little nicer. You know, I, I remember one in particular that was real foggy uh, for the most of the rifle hunt. And, you know, everyone I talked to said all them bulls were, you know, still holding tight, you know, on in the, nothing really in the canyons. But it was hard to tell because those canyons were full of fog. So I, I think we have been seeing more warmer, uh, more warmer weather that keeps them out of them canyons. Walk me through, uh, Kevin, some of your late hunts either with a rifle or with a bow, um, as far as kind of how the progression went as you hunted them and maybe how your, how your size quality went up or your time in the field went up. Talk to me a little bit, kind of walk me through some of those bulls. Um, one that sticks out a lot. I went with uh, a couple friends, a father and his son, uh, and we started the hunt and there was, of course, there's no pressure, uh, finding bulls in the canyons and they weren't, they weren't particularly deep, but they were, you know, they were in the canyons and, uh, opening day, a ton of people moved in, you know, the bulls, there wasn't much shooting. The bulls started disappearing. And I want to say we went four or five days. It was really warm. Um, I would find on a G we'd hit those flats, real thick flats. I'd hit a GPS and find a point, you know, we'd walk through trying to bump a bull. And I, you know, we, when we do that, we always talk about, when those bulls get up out of their bed, they'll hit that canyon. But when they go up that other side, it might be 200 yards. You know, they're going to stop and look back and, and wonder what just bumped them. And I think we bumped one bull that my buddy ended up missing. And we we struggled. So finally, we ended up moving up into the pine trees. And, uh, I mean, lo and behold, there was bulls in the pine trees. No one else was in the pine trees. We ended up killing two bulls side by side in a pretty pretty gnarly canyon. Um, but it was just one of those things where, you know, I was dead set on the cedar trees and the, you know, the lower country. And it finally dawned that, you know, this heat might be keeping them in the pines. So once, once we moved up there, there was, there was actually quite a few bulls held up in them canyons. And when you're, so when you're hunting them up in the pines, what kind of methods, I mean, are you just walking and, and, and tracking and jumping them up or are you, still hunting what what's your method of what's your favorite method to hunt them when they're in the pines when they're not bugling you know it was kind of it's kind of i guess you consider it uh still hunting we you know we'll find a road that borders a uh, a rim or a canyon and we'll park and then uh you know just slow walk it along that rim and you know sometimes you know depending on the weather depending on how hot it is you know we'll walk the you know the north side um uh, excuse me, the south side, looking into the north side, you know, looking into the shade, um, or on that day it was real, uh, cold and those bulls were in the sun and on the south facing slope and it was all spot and stock. It was, I I always give my dad a hard time because we used to jump them and, you know, I've, I've changed it. I like the stock. I like, you know, getting as close as I can. I'm not much of a 
long range shooters. So I, I really like the, the stalking part. And that's what it's turned into is spotting them and, and then trying to set up or find a point where we can get, you know, 200 yards and, and go at it. How much of your late hunting success with, with archery equipment um, has to do with scouting and watching a particular bull over and over and over? Or is it more uh, just going and hunting that day and whatever you find, you know, you evaluate and then you go after them? It's been more like that. Um, when they first started those hunts, I, I drew a, a 6A hunt. And that was one of them I was hoping for some weather. You know, there was 25 tags. I figured, man, if we could get some weather and bump them bulls down into some canyon country, you know, it could be good. You can you can glass a lot and kind of evaluate what you're looking at. And it was the exact opposite. It was hot. I don't I don't have the patience to sit water. You know, I don't run trail cameras or nothing like that usually. But that that particular hunt, there was a a big ridge that was, I mean, solid manzanita and oak brush and there, it was full of bulls, and finally one day there was a pretty nice six-point, and uh, it was just like you said. I saw that bull, and it's like, yeah, let's give it a go. And and I'd done some scouting, and I knew where the bulls were, but they were mostly up high except on this one ridge. And I ended up, you know, getting in close to these bulls several times. I think you can make more noise on that hunt. The bulls are bachelored up, and, uh, you know, I was within 12, 15 yards of uh, several bulls on a different a, a couple different occasions but you know that's finding a shot with archery equipment's here is the issue and because the country's thick yeah i mean it was at, at times the manzanita it's over your head and i think them bulls were they'd actually hear you and they would think you're another bull because they can't see you and the the day i killed mine uh I got on the, the bigger bull and had him at 40 yards. He bedded down. I was running out of light. You know, me and my dad run uh, run radios, and I'll have an earbud in, and we've come up with a pretty good system on, walk, you know, walking me in blind but him being my eyes. And I got to 40 yards of that bull. He bedded down, and I was running out of light, and I'm, I wasn't too going to be too particular. You know, I wanted to you know, kill a bull and be successful and ended up coming around and, had a bull walking down a short trail, got behind him, and ended up shooting him at 35 yards once I could get a shot. And it was fun. I mean, it it opened my eyes to, wow, this can, you know, this can be done. These bulls are in thick. You know, even though you can't see them doesn't mean it can't be done. Yeah, and uh, let me double back. Well, first of all, how big was that bull uh, that you shot? He wasn't big. I mean, he was probably a busted up five point. But just getting in there, I think there were seven bulls. And, uh you know, getting in there, getting 40 yards from the big bull, you know, I could have could have shot him if I wouldn't have had so much brush, but just getting it done was was more what I was after. Yeah, and, and uh, I want to come back to something else you said, but first, uh, you talked about your dad uh, helping you spot and stalk uh, with the radio in Arizona. It's perfectly legal, 100% legal to use a radio, and it's actually a very efficient and effective way to to hunt, it's actually a fun way to hunt because you've got a buddy over on a point glassing for you. Uh, tell me a little bit about your strategy and tactic uh, in using a radio and an earbud. Is he constantly chattering and talking to you, telling you what's going on? Or do you like to just have him tell you and then not talk to you unless you ask him something? It, it depends. Um, if I have to get out of sight of the animal and say they're bedded, I'll... Uh, 
I'll tell him, you know, be annoying. Just keep talking. I want to know, you know, if he ever lifts his head or, you know, perks up thinking he heard something, you know, I'll stop. But anytime anything changes, if they're bedded, I want to know. Once I get within, you know, this year, uh, I had another late archer. This last year, I had another late archery hunt. Me and my wife, uh, she videotaped it. We got within 30 yards of a bull that we'd never seen. We'd seen him once at about 150 yards across the canyon, just the tops of his horns. But other than that, it was, you know, my dad telling me, all right, he's up, he's he's feeding or he's turning around, you know, and, uh, you know, one clicks a yes, two clicks a no. And if I just sit there and click a bunch, he'll just keep talking. You know, he's looking to the north. He's he's being lazy. He's not he's not paying attention. You know, it just depends. And uh, yeah, it took five hours on that bull. But every time my dad would call, he'd say he's up, I'd start moving. I didn't want to move while that bull was bedded. And I ended up coming around a corner and he was standing there at uh, about 30 yards and he laid back down and I sat there for, oh shoot, about an hour. And when he stood back up, he finally gave me my shot. But just, I've had so many hunts where, you know, just telling me where his head is or if he's bedded, just tell me what his alertness is and I can close the distance pretty, pretty fast without me ever saying a word. I want to dive into this a little bit more um, because I have used similar tactics. Um, and, and I want to say that obviously there's going to be people that don't like to hunt with a radio and that's fine. They don't have to hunt with the radio, but in states where it is legal uh, and you're not going to enter the animal into a record book. So you're just, you know, it sounds like, Kevin, you like to draw tags, you like to draw every year, and you like to kill an elk every year. So it sounds like you're trying to be as efficient and effective as you can. Um, I want to talk to you about, um, you said when they're bedded, you don't like to move. When they're feeding and moving, you like to move. Explain to me why. Uh, well, once I get to a certain range, you know, if they're bedded and I get to a certain range, it's I think that's when they're most alert and you know i had a couple stocks this last year where you know when they were bedded it was it just seemed like everything i touched was really loud once that wind would die down when they're up that big of an animal in thick trees thick brush they're making so much noise that i think i'm well i know you can get away with with quite a bit and you know their antlers are just a big you know warning device up there you know once you figure out which way they're facing and they turn away, I mean, you can get three or four steps on them. And, and with somebody watching and an earbud in, and once I get that close and I tell them, you know, just annoy me with all the information you can. I, I'm pretty, pretty effective once they're on their feet. Once they, once they bed down, I'll, I'll sit down myself, you know, collect it all in and just, you know, watch the wind. That's, you know, watching the wind and, and watching my noise is how I've been pretty successful. And people would actually be pretty surprised, like you said, how you can actually, if an elk it has his head down feeding and he's he's just chomping away, um, tell me your thoughts if you disagree. But, I mean, you can almost, if they're facing away from you and head down feeding, you can almost walk at a normal stride, you know, not making any, you know, a abnormal noise, but just a normal walk. And they don't even have a clue until you probably get 50 or 60 yards, maybe 70 yards. Once you get in that window, you have to kind of get into the tiptoe mode. But would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I remember uh, 
I remember being a little kid and I watched the guy on a, it was a caribou hunt and the, the bull had bedded down facing away and that he would just watch the tips of his horns. That's all he said. You know, he said, as soon as that antler moves, you know, I'm stopping. And I, re- I remember that like it was yesterday. And every time I'm stalking something that, you know, has, you know, especially a bull, you know, those horns are sticking up so high. It's, it's a, it's a warning device. If he's feeding, you know, of course they're moving. If he's bedded, you know, certain scenarios, if he's bedded, you get behind him, you know, play the wind and whatnot. But as soon as those horns start to come up, you know, that's when you duck down and, and hold tight to the ground. And they, and nine times out of 10, as long as the wind's right, they're going to, you know, go on their normal business. Yeah. And how often do you just stop and stand completely still? I mean, do you actually hit the deck or do you just stop and just remain motionless? Uh, it depends on my background. I don't like to be skyline. Um, this last year, my dad had an early archery tag and we hunted some bulls out in antelope country and, the one one day the bull bedded with some cows out and I mean there was absolutely nothing but we were skyline so watching his you know his antlers antler tips and whatnot we got to about 150 yards and then once he stood we we hit the deck you know we didn't want to be sticking out and he actually fed to you know 52 yards you know it was just rolling the dice on that one but he fed to 52 yards we just couldn't get a shot but I don't I don't like to be skyline. You know, I like to have something in my background. You know, my father's always told me, you know, use your camo, trust your camo and, you know, never sit down when you don't have to. Don't don't pin yourself down when you're standing up. You're more mobile. But if you're skyline, then you're you kind of have to, in my opinion. And speaking of that, I want to ask you a question about um, kind of in the moment of truth when you're right there and, you know, you're you're. 30, 40, 50 yards, whatever it may be, and, you know, the bull is facing away and you're just waiting for him to turn. Uh, are you actually, um, you know, ranging the actual elk or are you ranging a tree by him? Do you have an arrow knocked? And kind of walk me through what you're doing and thinking kind of when you've closed in and you are in the range. What What are you doing? What are you thinking? Once I get to, you know, 50 yards, my bow's shooting fast enough that, you know, from 20, 20 to 45, almost 50 yards, you know, you put those pins on the size of an elk that's, you know, 28 inches thick and, the you know, the kill zone's, you know, pretty big on that size of an animal. Um, you know, that bull, that late archer bull I killed in 6A, once I got to 50 yards, I had my range finder, and once I knew I was under 50, I knew, you know just to hold my pins you know once he gave me a shot i put my bow up and just kind of adjusted and you know and guessed the yardage this last year you know i had enough time i had plenty of time uh i ranged him a million different times to make sure it didn't change but when he stood i knew it was 30 yards um if i have time you know i want to know that range i don't want to foul nothing up you know i'm not worried about record book or nothing like that but i don't want to foul something up and be and be chasing an elk around you know that's the other reason i like having a spotter you know there's been a couple times i've been on hunts where the spotter was the key and a bad shot and still getting that animal killed having an extra set of eyes so i don't i like to have the range i like to know and i like to be uh consistent i like to you know have the right pin in the right spot what what bow are you shooting um kevin uh now i'm using uh, I've always shot Hoyt, but I got a Hoyt uh, Carbon Matrix, I think it's called. 
have had it uh, two years, and I just love it. It's lightweight. And What's your draw length? I think I'm shooting right now. I'm at 29 at 70 pounds, and uh, I've been shooting the Ulmer edges since they've come out. What has been your um, success with the Ulmer edges? Uh, how many bulls have you killed with them, and, and what's your thoughts on them? I've had two uh, archery bull tags. They've all been the late hunt, and I used the Ulmer edges on each one. And the, the first bull I shot was 35 yards, quartered away, and it was right at sundown. He went about 150 yards, and I backed out and didn't want to bump him. I felt confident in the shot, but I just – with with time running out, we bumped him or got out of there and uh, got back in there the next morning and he was piled up right there, right where he went in the trees. And then this year, uh, I mean, it's on film. I shot the bullet 30 yards and you literally see me reload and uh, you can hear the bull pile up. I remember hearing my dad in my ear, you know, saying, you know, did you shoot? Because he couldn't see me. And then literally a second later on, he just piled up and you know that with that broadhead being able to put a screw in it and shoot the actual head you're going to hunt with you know where it's hitting you know you know exactly what it's doing so you find five of the best ones and take the screws out and go to town yeah absolutely um your late archery and the late rifle hunts uh give me four five six different units seven units whatever um that that you like to hunt or that you have hunted. Um, you mentioned, I believe, 6A. I believe you mentioned 5A or 5B. Uh, give me some of the units that you like on the late hunts. You know, I like the, the big units. You know, the you know 5A is not super big, but uh, 5A, 8, um, the multi-unit up here, you know, that you get quite a bit of time, but you get seven units. Uh, it's a block unit. Um 6a you know there's tons of tags but it's a big enough unit and you know has the country that you can get away from people i try to stay away from like seven west and seven east because i in my opinion there's too many tags too small of an area um the unit 22 I'm, i've been on a couple hunts there and it just seemed like you'd glass a bull and you it was like antelope hunt you had to run after him because there was hunters there was hunter orange all around you and you know just I try and stay away from the the tag numbers that I don't agree with, and I I lend myself more towards the rough country, other the most part. But you're also looking at those hunts as you would prefer to just draw a tag every year rather than wait ten years for some premium tag, correct? Yep. And I give I give my buddies a hard time all the time because uh, I'd rather have twenty bulls than wait twenty years for one bull. Sure. Um, what is your best bull that you've, that you have harvested? Um, archery wise, this bull I killed last year, he was, uh, he was 340, 347 and he was missing nice. about six inches off, uh, I want to say his fifth on his right side. And then that's a great bull. Yeah. And you know, I had, I had friends that had the same hunt and the early archery and, you know, and I, you know, I harvested a bigger bull and it's not being cocky or nothing. It's just, I've put the time in and it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, there's only 25 tags. So it's, you get the whole hunt to yourself. How much of those uh, bulls compared to the early season uh, on these late hunts that you've done, how many, what percentage of bulls 
and and let's say you know six point bowls are better. Uh, how many of those type of bowls are broken? What percentage? Um, I don't know. That's a that's a good question because it seemed like last year I had a friend that had the muzzleloader. I mean, it was in it was in unit ten. Had the muzzleloader hunt and we hunted uh, the week before my hunt started, and it seemed like the majority of the six points we saw were not broken and we saw some pretty, pretty big bulls. Um, I can't even remember a bull that was busted up real bad. I mean, of course there was the the fours and the five points and stuff like that, that were broke. But as far as the mature bulls that we were chasing, there wasn't a whole, I mean, a couple inches here and there, but there wasn't, it was, it was awesome. <laughs> that's That's great. It's great. I'm glad you guys had a good hunt. Uh, tell me a little bit about Cindy Richardson's bull and um, how that went down. And, and uh, obviously a phenomenal bull. I think it was the biggest bull or one of the biggest bulls shot last year. Um, tell me about that. Okay. Um, actually, it was in 2013. Uh, okay. Okay. You know, Cindy came and had told me she wanted to harvest a, you know, a giant bull. And she we were hunting private property on the ORO ranch up here in uh, 18B and I want to say we we hunted for four or five days looking for the the size of bull that she wanted and one morning uh, we had pulled up into an area where the bulls you know there's big pastures that they like to run out in in the evening and I've you know I've witnessed it those mature bulls leaving the herds you know, the herds go into the west, but those bulls always go to the east, it seems, up into the thicker cedar country. And it's a cat and mouse game. You know, you park your truck and you haul butt up into the mountains and get ahead of them. Well, that morning we had gotten up ahead of them, and I think I'd called one bull in, and she passed him. And I got to the edge of a little draw and looked down in the bottom, and he was standing there. I mean, as soon as I saw him, it was... I just, I remember looking at Cindy saying, there he is, you know, that's the Cindy bull. There's your bull. And, uh, he was fighting with the, what I would consider the mature bull. His body was bigger. He was busted up real bad. Um, he just dominated her bull and her bull, you know, was 30, 40 inches bigger or if more, but, uh, they had six cows and, I would imagine one of them was hot because every time Cindy's bull would get close, that bigger bull would run him off, but they would always stay about a cedar tree apart. They would rake, you know, one bull would start raking, she, her bull would start raking. So we sat there and watched, got some film of him because, you know, of course, if we wouldn't have killed him, I wanted to go back to camp and, and tell him, you know, look at this guy, check this bull out. You know, he's his seconds on him are 25 inches and he's almost, I was pushing 50 inches wide. I mean, just a giant bull. So we sat there watching him and, you know, in the back of my mind is, you know, do we run after him? Do we get down there while they're fighting? Well, the cows were between us. So, you know, for the first time in my life, I finally, it's like, no, let's just stay patient. We'll sit here and, and take it slow. Well, we worked down, down the canyon and got to about, uh, about 150 yards from him. The cows bedded down and the, the bigger or the mature bull bedded right above him. And I remember watching that bull bed in the open above these cows, the cows had bedded, and Cindy's bull would go to the top of the ridge. Well, they would sit there and get a rest for about an hour, and Cindy's bull would get up and just, 
just sound off one bugle. And I remember that big bull would jump up, the old bull, and run up there in just all day from probably 8 in the morning till 4 o'clock in the evening. That's all those bulls did. And it was really interesting to sit there and watch, you know, how they interacted. Well, finally those cows got up and started feeding around. And I told Cindy, I said, let's go. Let's, you know, they're, they're still bugling. Let's get in there tight and see what we can do. Well, we ended up getting down in there and the cows fed in front of us at probably 60 yards with the broken bull, but her bull didn't show up. And we got up in there playing the wind right. And once we got up on top where her bull was supposed to be, you know, I was planning on bugling, raking a tree, doing something, you know, getting her 50 yards in front of me. I looked down below us and those bulls were just, you know, posturing each other, sitting there throwing their heads at each other right next to a creek bed. And, you know, I got aggressive. I told Cindy, I said, we got to get in that creek bottom and, and just let's go. So we ran down in there, got in the creek and, I mean, I just remember how how much our excitement, you know, it's at the opportunity I saw. And we ran down in there, got to come around a corner, had no idea where the cows were. And those bulls were sitting there throwing their horns together. They weren't really fighting. And when we come around the corner, it was 40 yards. And just one shot, he was slightly quartered away. And her arrow hit, you know, mid-body and a little further back. You know, and in the heat of the moment, when I saw the arrow hit, it was like, oh, no, you know, it's this is this might not be good. The bulls ran off. And I remember me and Cindy looking at each other just at what happened. So we kind of backed out, grabbed the arrow. And, you know, I've been a firm believer. If you have any doubt in the shot to just back out, we marked the spot, went back to the truck. You know, we still had two or three hours of hunting light and went back to camp and didn't sleep all night we woke up that next morning went in there and that bullet went about 150 yards laid down you know liver and the way the broad you know she was shooting the the uh grim reaper uh that broadhead worked you know mechanical broadhead worked its way all the way up through the liver and that bull laid down at 150 yards and we found him right there that, that next morning you know, you mentioned something there. Great story, by the way. Um, you mentioned something there that I thought I'd make note of. Um, you know, I, I've found more times than not, if you're not sure about the shot, it's better to wait. And, and you know, you never want to lose any meat. You always want to get as much meat as you can, but it's always a gamble because if you move too soon and you jump a bull, once that bull jumps up, your odds of, of fi ever finding that bull go dramatically down. And I think from my experience, your experience, and others, my hunting partner Dar and others' experience, I think it needs to be noted that, you know, you have to be, very, in my opinion, very conservative when uh, trying to recover your elk because the worst thing you can do is get in there a little too aggressive and jump that elk. Once that elk has jumped, you've jumped them one time, you know, I don't know what the percentage is but your odds go way, way down. And a lot of times, if it's a marginal hit, you know, it may take a while for the bull to die and you get in the next morning, most every time that meat is still 100% fine. And so I always say, would you rather find the elk or jump the elk and never find it? You know, may lose a little bit of meat, worst case scenario, 
or jump the elk and then we never find it again. Yep, exactly. And, you know, on that bull, I think we lost the cape. The hair had started slipping a little bit. But other than that, uh, you know, the armpits and the pockets and around the throat were a little uh, a little warm, you know, so you just kind of trim around it. But other than that, yeah, the, it, exactly. The whole animals, it's there. And I've seen way too many times where people bump bulls or not seen it, just heard about it, bumping bulls. And from day one, uh, you know, my father, you know, he's always told me you, you wound a bull or, you know, think it's bad. Just time is your best friend. And almost all the time we find them right there, Real close, you know, her bull was 150 yards. He laid down, got sore, got sick, and that was it. Well, that's a phenomenal bull. Uh, four, what was it, 417 gross, 390 net? Yeah. That, that's a phenomenal accomplishment, and I actually got to see that bull uh, down, not at the Pope and Young Convention, but they were down there scoring. I actually had a an animal that I was taking there t- for them to officially score for the convention, and I saw her bull and what struck me was the beams and the width yeah and you know had real good fronts but you know really wide and just a solid i mean on the hoof one of those bulls that regardless of score looks big because anytime you've got a wide bull and long beams um you know they're gonna look big what what was the spread and what were the beams i want to say the beams uh i think they were kind of short i want to say they were 52 and he was 46 inches wide goodness yeah see that's um he was actually sitting cindy's bull was actually sitting next to casey brooks bull um that he shot a couple years ago one of the big ones and you know his is kind of narrow with a lot of points and kind of heavy and i just remember seeing hers on the ground and hers looked wide and the beams looked longer than 52 to me but um Phenomenal bull and a, and a great accomplishment uh, for you guys. Uh, I want to shift focus here a little bit on, uh, I know that you like to use the big eyes, the Swarovski uh, twin spotting scopes. Are you using the Swarovski or the Koas? No, nope, I'm using uh, the Koas. Oh, the Koas. Okay, so um, years ago, um, I've been a big fan of the Doctor Optics, the 40 super wide angle, and then I then switched to the Koa 32s and uh, a bunch of guys were using the Swarovski, uh, you know, twin spotting scopes. Tell me a little bit about your setup. Um, well, I had the, I want to say last year, two years ago, I got into the bigger, bigger glass. I bought a pair of the doctors um, and had them. I didn't have them very long. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jimmy Hoffman had these, uh, Koas with a 30 power wide angle fixed lens. They're a 66 millimeter objective. And I remember when he pulled them out, the size compared to the doctors, you know, I love the doctor glass. Um, and, you know, growing up, going up uh, around other friends, I'd seen the Swarovskis and I just remember watching them fight, you know, the culmination, they bump them. So I had bought the doctors thinking that was the best bet. Well, once Jimmy pulled these out and, and I got to look through them. I ended up selling those doctors, and I thought the Koa glass, the 30 power wide angle, and then we started brainstorming and thinking of, you know, the different lenses, the different, the variables. And so now we've, uh, I've actually seen a pair of the 65 Swarovskis variable lenses with their wide angle, and you know, with the plate, 
you can you can you can zoom in, pick the power, you know, walk the other power into the to itself. But for some reason, these koas I've just fell in love with. The the glass is unreal. Um, Do you know what your weight is, Kevin, on your adapter and the twin spotting scopes together? I wanna, Do you know what your total? I, is? I think it's just a hair over six pounds, um, which is unbelievable because the Koas, my koas are, I want to say 13. It might be 12 and a half, but I mean, so you're talking half the weight and you're probably talking, well, the, the twin scopes compared to the koas in length, they're probably about the same in length. They're they're shorter than the doctors, but about the same with the koas. What's your experience? I, you know what? I just had mine next to a pair of Highlanders uh, a couple days ago. They're shorter. Um, I like the way they lay in a pack. They're straight. They don't have the angled eyepieces, and that's something else that I don't like. You know, that, that glass is unreal. But the angled position, I'm sure I could get used to it, but I just – the straight and with the, the 30 power, the wide angle, it's it's unreal. And I've never had issues. It usually takes about two minutes to get the scopes, you know, zoomed, uh, zeroed in to where they're both matched up. And that was something else that I didn't like is I'd had heard horror stories on, like, the doctor's and say something bad happened, you took a fall and you bumped them out of alignment, uh, you were done. You know, it, you might not ever get them back in without sending them in. Well, on these, I've actually had a couple uh, pretty good spills and, and bumped them pretty good, but it, I carry an Allen key and a couple zip ties, and I thought I had messed them up for good, but about two minutes I had them back together and was looking for deer again. So they're uh, they're pretty bulletproof, and... Yeah, I, I'm probably just going to stick with these. I think we're going to start moving up and get the 88 objective, and they make a variable lens that's wide angle for them as well, and then a 50 power fixed uh, wide angle lens. So you will, you will, you you'll be, will you have two setups? Will you have this setup and the other setup, or you'll sell this setup and move up to the 50? I'll probably sell. Um, I don't. I don't need the, the double setups. And from what I've seen, uh, a friend of mine here has the machine and does all the machine work on the, the plates and he, he builds them and we can just uh, change the front where it's got a saddle that holds the scope in place and, uh, yeah, sell this one and then just upgrade. Cause I think with the 66 objective in the morning, early mornings and evenings, you lose some light, you lose some glass yeah. of light and, Definitely. The bigger you can get on the front end with that wide angle, it's 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 unreal. The difference. Well, I have the um, Swarovski um, STX ninety five, and I I was reading somewhere someone was trying to put the two ninety fives together. With that being said, I think it would be phenomenal because you know although it's a I have the variable thirty to seventy. Um, You'd, you'd probably be dealing with, you know, 18, 20 pounds worth of optics, though, because I want to say my, um, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, actually, I shouldn't speak what my 95 is, but it's phenomenal. Uh, but you really like those Koa spotting scopes, huh? Yes, I, they're, you know, right now I'm carrying those and a, a spotting scope because I haven't got an eyepiece to, you know, the eyepieces change out. So, you know, my dream setup is the Koa's straight with uh, a fixed eyepiece probably 30 and then just one variable eyepiece for that extra 
zoom in to, you know, really see what's going on. In uh, So on your dominant eye, which is your re- on me, it's my right, you would have a variable and then on the other side it would be fixed. And so you're telling me that that you could get away with having a variable and a fixed and, and still being crystal clear and, and have, uh, not bumped out of colonization or anything like that? No, I'll carry a 230 power fixed. And, uh, okay. you know, say I, I glass a buck up a mile away and I want to see, I'll just pull one eyepiece out, you know, on my left spotting scope, put the variable in and, and I'll have one spotting scope. So instead of like right now, I'm carrying uh, basically three spotting scopes in my pack. I'll just have to carry one extra eyepiece to zoom in. Okay. So with the way the platform sits, you can actually pull an objective or uh, uh, ocular lens, pull it out and pop a new one in without pulling it out of the case yep it's just like the uh just like the highlanders and okay and the, oh, that sounds interesting unscrews out you know it comes out put a new one in and you know check it out and then you can go back so in essence you would just have um uh you would just be popping in one little small piece that you would carry in your pack instead of a full spotting skill yep okay that's an interesting setup i'll have to take a look at yours um I also know that uh, uh, you, you've used flatline maps uh, quite a bit, and I, I like uh, flatline maps. Tell me a little bit about uh, your love for the flatline maps. You know what? They're uh, they're they're bombproof for one thing, the material, but uh, the detail and the biggest thing. You know, I I have a GPS with the the Onyx maps and i absolutely love it um i heard you and you and casey talking about it on his google time uh i was at the same time using it for the exact same thing you know skirting private property and it makes it easy uh because you know i don't want to be the trespasser or get caught or whatever but um you know flatline's coming out with uh, an app for their for your phone and uh it, it'll be just like the maps. It'll be a unit p- specific uh, map and it works without a, a signal. It just goes off the GPS. But what I really liked about it and I've seen is you can measure from from ridge to ridge. So, you know, with, with having the, the topo and the detail in their maps and say you had a bull bedded on, across the canyon and you found a point where you could find it on the map and you can actually measure, you know, if I got to that point, how far is it? And, you know, I've seen it firsthand. It's it's pretty spot on. It's pretty amazing that, you know, you can do that. And I'm sure you could you could figure it out with other ones. Um, but this map is once you zoom in and zoom out, you're not changing maps. It's it's unreal. And you and then the other cool part is you can share it from phone to phone. You know, if you if you kill the buck and needed help or whatever, you can uh, you can send the, the coordinates and the point to the map and it'll pull up on whoever you know, gets that point. So it's, so let me get this straight. If, 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 uh, I had, uh, the flatline maps app on my phone and, and you had your flatline maps on your phone, you were in a Canyon, you killed a bull. You could send me with this device. You could sit. Are you talking like a text message? Yep. Yeah. You, it would be like a, like on an iPhone, like a pin, you would be able to send, uh, your, uh, I'd be able to send you my pin on where I'm at and uh, your phone, your device would bring you, you know, to me. You'd be, and what's nice is you can zoom out and you'll be able to read the roads and uh, follow the roads and all that stuff. So you'd be able to pull up right where you wanted to and walk right to that pin. 
And do those uh, does the Flatline uh, Maps app uh, does it have aerial view and topographic view on two separate screens, or is the topographic overlaid over the aerial, or yeah. or do you know that? It's all it's all one map. It's it's pretty neat. It's all you're not changing screens or having to change maps. And this is not on your GPS. It's on your phone, correct? Yes. Okay. And it, will the will it also work? I guess it's an app, so it, it's not the software that would go on your GPS. So then, do you basically eliminate your GPS? Yeah, pretty much. And and uh, and just being able to use it without, you know, if you're if you're in a bad signal and you put your phone on uh, airplane mode, just being able to use it without, you know, wearing your battery down a, a whole lot is is pretty cool in my eyes too. Yeah, that's really neat. Uh, uh, I don't have Flatline Maps. Um, uh, website address, but I would assume it's if you Google Flatline Maps, uh, Jimmy Hoffman, who's a friend of yours, and I know Jimmy as uh, is, is owner of Flatline Maps, and he does a phenomenal job. So um, good, I can't wait to check that out. And um, uh, I've I've used the hard copies of the maps for years, and I'm looking forward to this app. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, that's awesome. Um, Kevin, I want to finish uh, today. I, I appreciate you being with us. I want to finish today talking about uh, I know your wife hunts. And um, uh, tell me if she was a hunter before she met you or if you just started getting her into it. And tell me about uh, what that means to you for your wife hunting. And, and I follow uh, her on Instagram and you, of course, on Instagram. And um it's obvious to me that it's a family thing, and and uh, you guys are both really into it. T talk to me a little bit about that. You know, she wasn't a. Uh, I think she had been on a couple hunts before she had met me, but the year that we met, uh, I think she picked up a leftover pig tag, and we took her. And I remember, you know, not knowing how a person's going to take, you know, harvesting an animal. And I remember when she harvested her her pig, how, you know, you saw the look, and it was. Uh oh, you know I have created a, a monster inside her because, in a way, it's good. But it, now that we have kids, in a way, it's bad because you know if we both want to go, we gotta you know find help with our kids. Which our daughter's getting to the point where we've we've taken her on a a pig hunt and you know this this year on a couple uh, turkey scouting trips and and it's awesome. You know she's she's harvested. Uh, uh, several animals um she's really getting big into into bow hunting and it, it gets to the point where that's all she talks about too so it's really cool to have a you know someone you know that i can go with at any time and she loves it as much as i do that's awesome yeah i enjoy seeing you guys' pictures and with the little ones uh seeing the little guys out there with you and um, why don't you tell my listeners how they can uh, find you guys, follow you on Instagram, Facebook, etc. Um, on Facebook, it's it's just my name, you know, Kevin Passmore, and uh, Instagram, I think it's uh, it's Kipper, K-I-P-P-E-R, 2012, and then uh, our YouTube channel is just my name, Kevin Passmore. I think that's all kind of linked together. Uh, we have a blog also. Um, that we don't get on as much, but our YouTube, our YouTube channel and our Instagram is usually the busy, busiest. Um, and every once in a while, uh, I don't do it as much as Craig wants, but I, I write for Craig on org hunt and try and share, you know, all of our hunts on there as well. Yeah. I was just going to say, I enjoy reading your stories and, um, watching your videos on org hunt.com. 
Um, you know, it's a family affair and, uh, proud of what you guys are doing and proud that you guys are making it a, you know, a, a full family deal. I'm sure your kids are going to be just as into it as you guys are and, um, enjoyed watching and seeing all your turkey pictures from this spring and watching your good video and, um, want to encourage you guys just to keep it up. And, uh, I know you're going to be doing some guiding this year and, and I believe unit one and, and, uh, 23 on some late hunts and, uh, whatever else you got going. I want to wish you the best of success and uh, thanks for spending time with us here today and uh, uh, keep, keep posting those great pictures on Instagram. Uh, I enjoy uh, checking them out. All right, Jay. Well, thank you for the opportunity and yeah, good luck this year with everything you got going on. Sounds good, buddy. And I hope your clients, I uh, hope you guys get some big bowls and uh, I'll uh, see you when I see you. And, and uh, until, until then, uh, you know, just uh, get after them and uh, uh, have fun with it. All right. Thanks, Jay. All right. You take care, Kevin. You too. Thanks for listening to the Jay Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and join today.